Hey, Tom Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012, and this recording is coming to you straight from the con. That's right. We present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content. We are not censoring for language. And while our editor, Sam, will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible. So it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to. With that said, we as always have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers. Video, board, card, mini, and of course RPGs. Be sure to swing by ContinueMag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast. Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording. Whichever one it happens to be this time around. Enjoy! Um, hi everybody, this is, uh, I can't even remember what we call this, this, uh, this panel, digital... Digital gaming. D&D, digital gaming, right. D&D, I don't know. So, you wrote uh, it up. <laughs> so, my name is John Fine, and I am a senior producer at Wizards of the Coast. Um, my primary job is to handle the relationship between Wizards of the Coast and our external developers that make video games, like Cryptic and Turbine and, and uh, Atari, things like that. Uh, I've been in the video game industry for over a decade. I started off at LucasArts, did, did the uh, Star Wars thing for a while, went on to, to Microsoft and, and a couple of other places, and finally landed at Wizards of the Coast, which means that, that my 17-year-old self back in high school was looking on uh, at me with incredible envy, because uh, you know that was what I wanted to do when I was 17, was work at TSR, so, so everything is, is really, really cool for me. Uh, this uh, lecture is mostly about uh, how, how we turn our 2D paper and pencil video game, uh, uh, RPG into video games uh, and the difficulties they're in because it's really two different types of mediums with two different types of demands. And so many times, I, I don't know if you guys were like me back in high school or early college, and you'd be playing your video game. We were really heavy into Rollmaster uh, back in, in college. We'd go, oh, wouldn't this be so much better on computer? Because, you know, Rollmaster has, what, 4,000 pages of charts? Um, you guys don't play Rollmaster, right? Yeah, this is a big Rollmaster fan, uh, fan uh, area here. Um, and, uh, um, and so what we didn't know then is all the difficulties that it takes to, to make a fun, engaging experience for, um, from the uh, uh, pen and paper experience to the, the, the video game experience. So um, without further ado, let's introduce our panelists. Um, so first we have John Chindani. John Chindani. Uh, introduce yourself, John. Hi, I'm John Chindani, and I am the Senior Creative Director with Wizards of the Coast, and I specify, specifically work on Dungeons & Dragons. My, past, my passion, my love, I've been there playing D&D since 1975, so you, as you can guess, I like the game. Um, I was, uh, I came up to D&D, well I came as the Wizards of the Coast, I was hired, I was headhunted by them in 1997. Um, I actually started working at Wizards the same day all the guys from TSR started, so we all went through orientation together and it was instantly assumed that I came from TSR even though I didn't. Uh, but it was great fun because I got to sit in orientation with all my greatest loves, sitting next to Brom, sitting next to Todd Lockwood, sitting next to Jeff Easley, and just kind of going, uh, it was amazing to me that, you know, years later, they actually, we actually all worked together on the team for D&D, and I've just loved it ever since then, and so I have a great time, have a great job. My job pretty much entails 
if it's got the D&D logo on it and it's got visuals attached to it, I'm responsible for making sure it hits the mark. And if it doesn't hit the mark, I get hit by my fans, and I get hit by my boss, and I get hit by anybody else who happens to walk by me. And so that's all good. That's why I have a cane now to protect myself. Uh, so uh, this is going to be kind of a, a free-ranging conversation. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to chat for a little while. Hopefully Jack Emmerich will show up in a little bit, and he's going to be showing us some fun stuff at about 11. And uh, we're going to have lots of questions and answers and just kind of chat for a little bit. So feel free to jump in. All right, Eric. All right. Uh, my name is uh, Eric Boyer. Um, my uh, uh, Twitter and uh, forum account is uh, Producer Glenn. It was something that was uh, dubbed to me uh, through uh, podcasts uh, on uh, DDO. It started about uh, five years ago. And uh, so uh, I've got a, um, a reputation as Producer Glenn, who's the snarkier side of myself. And uh, I've been at uh, Turbine WB Games uh, since, uh, m since Mod 1 of DDO. I actually started playing and interviewing to uh, work at Turbine um, during the uh, DDO beta. And uh, it took about three months to, to land the job there. Um, I was a uh, game producer for um, uh, casual games prior to that and children's education games going back earlier in my career. And uh, so I got into my first AAA title through uh, Turbine on DDO, and I actually took uh, DDO to uh, Asia and Europe uh, as my first uh, assignment uh, managing that process. And I'm sure everybody knows DDO is Dungeons and Dragons Online, just to be sure. So, um, yeah, and we, uh, we didn't start out as just Dungeons and Dragons Online, we were Dungeons and Dragons Online Stormreach. Uh, we were. Uh, uh, early adopters of the Eberron campaign and promoting that, and uh, we've, we've been going strong with that for uh, uh, for about six years. Um, since then, uh, I've taken on the role of senior producer, managing the team. Um, we've got a, uh, a dedicated development team of, um, of you know starting with like ten world builders, uh, several systems uh, developers for our a plethora of MMO-based. Uh, uh, systems and uh, which we keep adding to, and uh, a strong engineering team, and that doesn't include all the supporting things that go with um, publishing uh, a, a digital game that's live and uh, constantly being updated uh, in a modular fashion. So, um, so that's where my hands are full of, uh, including um, the fun part of being a producer, as opposed to the project manager, is you actually have creative uh, input, so you get to. To really brainstorm, uh, what's the story? Where are we going with it? What's the future of it? Um, how do we um, uh, keep people interested now and continue to reach our goals uh, that are more long-term? Um, so those are the things I'm tasked with uh, in that environment. Cool. Um, so uh, let's uh, get this uh, party started. So John, tell us, uh, tell me about the best D and D experience you've had. The best D and D experience. Wow, yeah. that's such a wide-ranging thing. Yeah. The best D&D experience. Um, you're talking work-related or play-related? Oh, uh, play-related. Play-related. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, best D&D experience I ever had was uh, I was in high school. That was when I was first starting playing D&D. We had a guy named Steve Archote. Got me into D&D. It was awesome. It was fun. He convinced me to be a magic user. I never. I don't like being magic users. I found out. I despise being a magic user because five minutes the game started. I, we got into a battle, somebody chopped my hands off, I was worthless as a magic user, and they threw me off a castle wall. I have never played a magic user ever since. But I, I learned. this is the hype of your... <laughs> but I had a lot of fun. The thing I learned was that 
it was a great game to play. It was a lot of fun, and it totally sucked me in. And even though I had a miserable experience, um, I learned the great thing about D&D, the fact that it was wonderful, is that if I didn't like who I was, I could change it that fast. And that was the wonderful thing I learned about it. And that was the great experience. That from that day forward, I learned that um, whatever I didn't like, I got to change and be and do and what. And uh, so that's what made D&D the greatest experience. And so that's what I've always tried to make sure that as I worked in the industry was that understanding that the D&D experience is about what we make it. And if I try and narrow that down so I can't have that exploration part of it, it, it you lose it. So that's why it's really the most important thing for me. Awesome. So... Um that's a really good example. Let's break that down and try to make it into a digital experience. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, um, so you're a magic user, right? I am. All right. So um, the first thing is, is, is um, yeah, in the first five minutes you lose your hands. So Eric, tell me what you would have to do in a video game in order to be able to replicate this experience. Uh, to replicate the experience, first we'd, we'd need a, uh, a mechanic to not make you angry about your experience. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's a saying that, uh, um, you know, video games don't cause violence, but bad video games make people violent. And so it doesn't matter what the genre actually is. If you have a poor experience, you, you actually get really angry. So, so that's actually one of the things that, you know, you don't have your, your friend there to console you and say, that's okay, well... we'll you know, we'll re-roll you or something. You have to actually offer that in a mechanic that people understand. So, mm-hmm. so it's not exactly a, what's the gameplay experience so much as what do we do to, to make you feel better about your bad experience. Right. So mechanically, though, um, the first thing that you would need to be able to replicate this experience is a, is a model of a magic user with disposable hands, right? If you, yeah, if you could lose your hands yeah. uh, in, in, in combat, you would need to be able to represent that digitally. Right. So... Um, uh, at one point, I was working at um, Snowblind Entertainment. Uh, they did um, uh, games like uh, of the uh, Dark Alliance D and D games on the PlayStation. And we were on this new generation uh, uh, game that never got shipped. And um, one of the things that they were promising was everything had to fall off, basically the lock off farm, lock off leg, lock off head. It was a Monty Python. It, it was very interesting. They, uh, one of the programmers thought he was being clever and he invented a sword that uh, hit all those, those, uh, those spots all at one time. So you hit, hit a, um, a critter with one blow of the sword and all of the, the limbs and head flew off in one big spurt of incredible blending. Um, uh, and hands and, and so the, the problem with that was suddenly instead of having one entity, one guy, one model, uh, suddenly there is seven. And if you're in a mob of like orcs and you are slapping these things one at a time, suddenly ten orcs become seventy pieces of orcs, right? And so uh, that means seventy things on your screen. That means that that. Uh, uh, that uh, your lag is just getting worse and worse and worse as things fly through the air. And then you have the particle effects of blood, right? You have to consider all that not great stuff. So replicating an experience like being able to chop off the hands of a uh, magic user in a video game suddenly becomes a, uh, a, a very big exercise in trying to mitigate all those, those types of things. So when you try to go from the, the world of imagination to the world of, of, of uh, video games, you, you suddenly find yourself in a box, uh, a box of lag, a box of, uh, of 
of number of assets that you can spit on the screen, um, uh, the number of mechanics that you want to have. Uh, everything is based on time and on burn rate. Uh, so things things get uh, kind of rough. Um, Eric, you've played BB before, right? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us what your best BB experience is? Um. You know, I always attribute it back to my uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons experience where I would watch over my brother's shoulder when he played, and, uh, uh, and if he caught me, he'd hit me. Um, the reason that's a good experience is uh, one way to make people you know, motivate to want to do something is not let them do it, and you just get more of a drive to do that. Uh, so, uh, so I'd say that was actually you know, my early introductions is, um, is just wanting to be like my older brother and emulate that experience and, and get into that that cool, like, you know, come on, a seven-year-old being able to do these things. I have a better imagination than a 13-year-old. Come oh, of on. Course. Yeah, same <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, understanding the mechanics was, wasn't even important. It was, it was pretending you were you were doing something uh, awesome that, that made that cool. All right. So, um, but, uh, uh, you know, later on, um, uh, you know, things things changed, uh, experiences changed uh, in, in my life, and I move into video games and, and sort of gotten away from that, but, but being able to um, digitally relive those, those moments, um, and, and there's a big gap, which is part of what we're talking about, you know, and, and what that experience is, uh, between um, imagining it and have somebody try to convey it digitally. Right. So, so your best experience in D&D wasn't actually playing D&D, it was being hit by your brother while watching it was, Yeah, it was that, it was that, uh, um, that, that uh, life-changing moment. <laughs> Okay. I'm seeing an interesting, you know, mix of stuff here. A lot of negative experiences about great times in D and D. Yeah. Well, it leads to it leads to that chance of, of uh, you know being able to uh, um, have that alternate life and, and play out something and sort of escape reality a little bit. And that's that's what makes that good. Cool. Um, let's uh, keep going into art. So, John, um, uh, part of your job. Now is is to make sure that that uh, our pen and paper uh, RPG is faithfully reproduced in, in the digital formats. Um, so, uh, when you commission a piece of 2D art, are you considering uh, the ramifications of, of making that to a 3D piece of art? So yes and no, and because I'm going to segue back for a second. When you say faithful reproduction, um, I actually don't try and create a faithful reproduction of the paper pen game for the video games. Uh, and this is why, because different mediums require different user experiences. You know, So the idea of what I've tried to create for the pen, based, pen and paper based games is often very different than what I want to try and create for a video game versus a Facebook game versus a, you know, an IO game or whatever, because different user experiences, different user interfaces, different modes of playing, different, you know, those really all affect that. And so when we're trying to, you know, and even different attitudes of what the game is. Uh, so what, when we're trying to create that, I often have to keep in mind of what's that user experience going to be. So uh, while I might use a very stylized piece of art in a print publication, I might want to have a very realistic version for this. Or if i got a Facebook game, I might want to even go more stylized if my audience is younger, yada, yada, yada. So. When I'm commissioning art, especially as we're moving into a new D&D thing, I actually do com I commission art thinking about the idea of how it's going to be used in other mediums, whether it's a comic book or, or a video game or whatever, because uh, we're often trying to think about, you know, 
what's the differentiation between this creature and that creature? You know, what's the how are the outlines different so that if I got it into a mob scene in a video game, uh, do is there enough of an outline differentiation so that you can really instantly say, oh yeah, there's a knoll over there and there's a goblin over there and there's a fork over there? Uh, because especially in a mob situation, you need to, be able to identify really quickly so you can change your tactics and change what you're going to do and figure out what you know who's got to be up front, who's got to be in the back. So we definitely do think about that. Um, we also try and think about what kind of space they're going to take up. But at the end, we ultimately want to come down to, you know, how much does it really tap into what the ethos of that creature is? Because that's really more important sometimes. You know, sometimes I have to bend the rules, right? I'll tell the guys, you know, at, at Crypt, Cryptic or over at, you know, DDO or whatnot and say, okay, I know this is how we typically do them, but for your game, it's okay if we sit here and make them a little taller, a little shorter, because we need to create a better experience for the video game versus what we do for the RPG. And so... I have to understand that there's always got to be some latitude and some wiggle room to sit here and make for a good user experience versus just always be, yes, this is how the art must be. You know, everybody thinks that's my job. That really isn't my job. My job is to try and make sure that you guys are saying, yeah, that works. That really, that's really cool. And that's how it, a goblin would act or that's how it would look or that's how it, you know, in, in that user experience. Right. Um... Uh, in our recent experience with, with Cryptic, um, uh, they gave us a werewolf boss uh, that was literally 15 feet tall, right? And so uh, when you're looking at it and you're just standing up next to it, right? So, so that the, uh, the werewolf is up here and, and you know, we're, we're down here and you think this werewolf is ridiculously oversized, right? It's just huge. Can't believe how big this is. There's no, no uh, reason for this werewolf to be 15 feet tall. Um, but uh, with the Cryptic Engine, uh, hopefully Jack will be here to, to show it off a little bit. And I think that we have it in the booth. Yeah, um, we did. Uh, so uh, um, the, uh, uh, your, your camera is over your shoulder, right? So it's back here. And so when the camera is back here, um, that means that you're not really looking from your eyeballs to the thing that, that you're fighting. You're looking at, at it from six to ten feet behind you which means that it looks uh, smaller because it looks like you're six feet or ten feet away, farther away from it. And so, so in that, that uh, example, the werewolf was a boss, and the boss kept summoning other little werewolfy and wolfy things to, to come and attack you while you're trying to, to take it down. And so Cryptic felt it was very, very necessary to be able to have something that stood out so you knew where the boss was. And so, in this case, we, we played the game, and we thought, you know, the werewolf doesn't look 15 feet tall when you're actually playing uh, the, the game inside the Cryptic Engine. And it makes a lot more sense when it's the boss, and, and, and uh, you can focus on that boss easily, target it easily, uh, uh, and uh, fight it easily, rather than having a more normal size and getting lost in, in terms of, of the, uh, the rest of the, the critters that are fighting, fighting the enemies. So we, we do this with, uh, with scale um, all the time. That, that we, I, we've had these same conversations over the years on like our devils are you know, supposed to be you know, 13, 15 feet tall, but we had to make them closer to 19. Otherwise, they don't feel uh, like a boss. They don't make you feel heroic. And uh, if, you, if you run around, you'll, you'll notice this is uh, not just in, in DDO, but uh, it's pretty standard that uh, the NPCs are shorter than you. Uh, this makes you feel better about yourself. 
No, so this is a, this is satisfying a need about you feeling good about what you're doing and and going up against something that's bigger than you and killing it makes you feel better about yourself as well and so that's why we have that uh, that push for this guy's tough and we can stat him all we want and make him as big as a rat and you won't feel like he was that cool of a kill um, but uh, if we make him look really menacing by just being larger than you um, the same example if you take down a dragon you feel pretty cool. Uh, when you've actually done that, um, and uh, the uh, the biggest sense of of that is, is it's bigger than you, and uh, I took down something more that appears to be more powerful. Um, so we're we're conveying that message in uh, the digital format that you don't do in a, a pen and a pen and paper because you're you're looking at things to scale. Like you know, I'm six feet tall as my heroic character, and this thing's. Uh, you know, 12 feet tall. That's huge. And when you look at that in, a, in the, like the camera, uh, the the perspective is that it's not actually that much bigger than you when it's only 12 feet tall. It's actually twice your size if you're inside of the model. But when you're away from it, it, it just shrinks down. So, yeah, that that uh, camera angle does a lot of other weird things. Uh, for one thing, if you start running normal speed of a human, you would feel like you're just crawling through the game. So normally, run speeds are twice, three times the speed of a normal human could run. Uh, same deal with jumping. If you could only jump, you know, the, the, the current vertical that you have, I know that I have a, a, a vertical lower than John's, and John is, is on crutches. <laughs> uh, so uh, um, uh, you, would, you would think that you wouldn't be able to jump at all in, in that. So normally I think that uh, most of your games jump the height of the character. Uh, yeah, we're we're probably uh, you start out about waist height jump yeah. as your level one. Yeah, right. So. And um, uh, how many people here can actually jump to their waist here? He can. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> he has a low waist. You can't tell. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, yeah, let's let's start talking about how um, how to transfer D and D into a video game. Um, so. Uh, John, what, what are the, the, uh, the primary things that you think you need in order to have a, a, a video game that, that says that it is D&D? So, you know, actually, uh, Chris Youngs and I had a really long discussion about that quite a while back. Uh, Chris Youngs is the, my R&D counterpart, counterpart on, the, on the R&D side of things. And uh, we had a long conversation about what is this core of D&D, you know, what's that experience that we try and take across, and we know that there's, uh, obviously there's the things that you should be able to fight, you should be able to cast magic, you should be, I mean, that those are typical, that's pretty obvious, right? But we also realized that there's a lot of core things that, if you look at most video games out there, you'll realize that they lifted a lot of things from D&D. Well, there's, there's health points, oh, there's hit points, there's armor class, there's, you know, these are all core components that have been part of D&D for almost 40 years now that are very commonplace in video games now. Awesome, we love it, we like to do the same thing. Um, we also know that you'd like to be able to have, you know, be able to build your characters. That's one of the major components. We, you know, that's one of the big things. If you can't build your character, you can't create your character, it's a really bad D&D experience as far as we're concerned because that's such a major component that, you know, if everybody, I mean, I assume that everybody out here is much like I am. You like to build your characters. You like to take time, spend energy, you know, thinking about that. Is that true? Okay. I was <laughs> like, am I wrong? <laughs> uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the core, core things we like to be able to do. We like to have progressions. You like to be able to level up. You like to be able to get new powers and, and, and new abilities. And that's also, we see that as a very core component. You know, 
So, interestingly enough, a lot of the things we know as D core experiences for the D and D play experience for things that have been lifted for, for many, many years already as part of the, you know, the game playing experience because they recognize that, oh, hey, these are great experiences. We love to do them, you know. So uh, just those core things that most games already do, and that's, that's why we like to keep doing them too. So that's, uh, but that's what, the other thing we really like to do is we like to encourage team play whenever possible. The head-to-head -head experience is awesome. I mean, if you want to do that, great. Go out and grab yourself any kind of shooter. You can sit here and go head-to-head -head with anybody in the world. Uh, one of the things we like to encourage as much as possible in our games um, is a team play experience, whether it's you can grab NPCs and go run and do something or whether you actually can team up with your friends and go do something. Uh, that's a really important component because that social aspect uh, is, is really key in a lot of ways. I mean, it emulates the idea of I got my five friends around a table that we're going and we're going to kick down the door, kill the monster, and go off and have lots of fun. All right, and uh, Eric, uh, what do you think uh, is the essential ingredients to make a video game feel like a D&D &D experience? So there's a couple of things that we uh, try to stay consistent with. Um, well, the character build, definitely, we, we touched on that, and, and that's one of the things that, that so we tout as the thing we're most proud of. You can, you can multi-class, you can do uh, any number of insane to broken builds that you want, and, and uh, uh, you've got the... Um, the familiar, you know, three, five rule stats, and and uh, uh, and we've also added uh, um, an enhancements line, like a benefits line that you can get while you're leveling up, uh, to to allow you to diversify, uh, add, uh, you know, toughness uh, in between levels, so you get uh, a little bit more uh, for hit points and, and so on. So you can you can customize your characters. There's a whole community basis to that, which uh, also supports that keeping it D and D because it really is about being social. Interestingly enough, it doesn't really mean you have to be social in game. Um, there's there's a community side to it that you can you can tap into, um, and part of the MMO environment is that it is open world, and we've opened up over the years we've opened up chat to just be general, even whether you're questing, if you're within the region, you can hear chatter from other people and interact with those people. Um, lots of talk about. Um, uh, builds and what does this do and what do I need if I want to do this particular thing uh, what are these monsters immune to and, and what do I need to, uh, to be able to you know, accomplish these quests that, that sort of communication is, is essential and then the other thing in the gameplay uh, that, uh, that I love about uh, you know, how we're interpreting the D&D the, the &D experience is uh, having the DM actually guide you through uh, even though we're, we're trying to represent visually that uh, you're in a cave and that there's dark corridors and there looks like uh, uh, some sort of hag hut you know, down in the corner. And you can see that, so the DM doesn't have to tell you about it, but uh, the DM can definitely tell you about the, uh, um, you know, the distant sounds, uh, tell you about the smells, and, and, and add to that, that experience that, uh, uh, that you would normally only get from um, you know, having the DM describe it to you because we can't visually represent it. Uh, so I think those are important. Also, uh, tips on what to do, sort of subtle hints or maybe foreshadowing mm -hmm. uh, for what to do, also an important part of the DM. So uh, um, Studio has a, has, has a dungeon master that, that, that tells you what, what's up with the, the, the instance that you're going into, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the way to look at it is is you get together with your friends and play with us, the dungeon master. You know, we're, we're the ones that have, have built it out. We're the ones with the... The box on our side of the computer, and uh, and we've um, we really do you know uh, uh, pen and paper the dungeon out right. Um, we represent it um, 
uh, it's, it's not generated uh, stock quest type of thing of go collect this. We create adventures with a story, and, and that's, that's part of that, that D&D experience, I think, too, that, that uh, you really appreciate. Um, what we, we don't have, uh, and I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a feature of gaming thing, is, is allowing you to actually create your own dungeons. And I, I think that's, um, that's just saying that you can be the dungeon master. Now, uh, in the digital realm, that's, that's quite an investment, and it's probably risky, and it's expensive with current technology, um, to, to allow tools that are accessible and, and statistically maybe 10% of the core audience would actually use them. I think you're getting more generous. <laughs> Depends on how easy they are. <laughs> um, uh, that's really good. Uh, so, um, yeah, let's, let's burrow a little bit further into the difficulty of, uh, of making D&D into a, uh, a video game uh, in terms of writing. So, in a, a regular D&D game, the, the, the DM uh, is able to uh, fly by the seat of his pants, basically, right? So the, uh, the uh, party starts on the dungeon. Uh, they go outside of, of the, uh, uh, they, you say, okay, you see a, a dark dungeon ahead of you. You know, uh, you're there to, to get the, the lost tre- the treasure, so and so forth. Um, uh, what do you do? And the, the players say, oh, well, we leave the dungeon and go over the next mountain and see what's over there because, you know, this, this dungeon is obviously very hard. So, um, so in a video game, you can't you can't plan for that, right? You're you pretty much having to to, to drive a, a, a character uh, as sandboxy as your game is. There are still limits to to the, uh, the the things that your your character can do, and especially with, with adventure design, uh, you end up doing uh, much more linear experiences. Um, so, uh, how do you uh, do adventure design? Indeed, video to make people feel like they have more choices, more abilities, more sandboxy feel than they might actually have. Um, so, there's always that main quest, the thing that gets you the experience in the in the main chest and the the uh, quest reward loot and, and all those things at the end. So that's the thing that becomes sort of the static, minimal thing to do. Um, then uh, there, there's that ability to add optional adventures, things that you can, like you're really enjoying this, you want to keep that, this experience of this gameplay, these particular monsters, and this storyline. Um, so you have the optional objectives, which you can um, separately earn your experience in, um, possibly, usually, uh, additional loot. And, uh, and then the, uh, uh, the main storyline is also populated with lots of optional quests, like you know, hundreds uh, overall of, of quests that have a small three to four part storyline. Um, and uh, over the years, you're eventually able to reach a point where um, you do have choices of what, what you can play. You don't have to play everything just to, to progress. You know, uh, Emma comes down in the beginning and you pretty much have the content you need to, uh, to level to the max level. And uh, the uh, part of supporting the game live is that you populate more experience across those level bands uh, and add the uh, flexibility of, of what adventures you take. So you have some options to say, I don't really want to play this one, or I don't have a party uh, strong enough for this particular one, or I'm just soloing tonight, so I want to play this one. Um, and then the other thing that we try to do for the accessibility to all that is um, to add a, a certain level of, of 
variability based on the difficulty level that you choose to take. So if you guys are uh, all pretty hardcore experienced uh, with strong builds and, and awesome loot from, from your raids, then you're probably going to want to just stick to the epic challenge, which has uh, tougher traps, maybe different monster variants and so on. Uh, or you could play a more casual version of that same adventure, same storyline, um, but the challenge is reduced, uh, maybe the monsters are fewer. Um, so there's that diversity in that single dungeon just for that as well. Cool. Um, and uh, uh, one, one other game design kind of uh, video game question. So uh, D&D has many less levels than, than the normal one. Like uh, World of Warcraft is what I can level up to uh, 80, 90? 90. 90. 90. Soon. Soon, yeah, soon, 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 but D&D has 30 levels in, in fourth edition at this point, right? So, so, um, so how do you stretch that out to make it feel like a, a competing MMA? How do you, how do you make that, that get up to that 20th or 30th uh, level? Yeah, so the, uh, the same thing with, you know, getting a, a plus one item in other games, that doesn't really mean as much. But in, 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 in D&D, I mean, that's 10% that's better, right? Because you're, you're, you're dealing on a, on a different scale. Um, so we've we've given a little bit of a, a perception of, of of how big those levels are by putting ranks in between. So um, as you're leveling up your your um, first twenty uh, levels, you're actually going to have um, five milestones in there where you you earn an additional achievement or benefit, and uh, that gives you that sense of, of progression. And if you add that up, it's you know it's ninety to hundred levels in comparison. So you set the bar. We subdivide it, and, uh, and and those experiences are really just as long, you know, as compared to the, the I mean, you get to level seven in uh, a typical MMO, that's your first night. Yeah. Level level two in DDO is a pretty good night. <laughs> cool. Um, so uh, I don't have a lot more topics up here for the, the lectures, and we're getting to a good time to start opening up to uh, to the audience. Um, so uh, let, let's... Let's do a, a quick uh, uh, survey before we start taking questions. So, uh, how many of you guys work in technology? Look at that. And uh, how many of you guys actually work in video games? Uh, <laughs> um, all right, good. Uh, so, so yeah, one of the things that, that we find out on our D&D forums is that we have a large amount of people who love to give us free technical advice. Um, uh, so, so Kind of, kind, of, kind of knew that you guys were probably technical um, All right, so let's uh, let's bring it around. Um, we have uh, microphones in the center, but I think I'm just going to walk around like for the for the audience up here. Thanks. Um, so I, I play D&D uh, online, and, and we play you know everything from network internet to like that. And so I think there's there's a really good selection of online and remote pieces to. to Fill in that I want to play with my friends, um, but with mobile gaming and like the release of Baldur's uh, Gate, do you guys have any plans of going back to like you know Pools of Radiance, uh, Eyes of Boulder, any of those old licenses and kind of making them from mobile for that, that party based solo on the go kind of thing? Um, so I guess I can answer that. Uh, so, um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, the old stuff, especially the gold box games. Um, uh, are difficult for us because uh, they come from TSR and TSR did all their contracts in 
I'm not sure exactly what language, but our lawyers don't speak it. Um, uh, and uh, um, so it's, it's very, very difficult to, to dig those, uh, dig those old, old games out because of, of the, the massive legalese that, that, that happened back then. Um, however, uh, that does not mean that um, we won't be making uh, successors to those games in the future. Um, we do have uh, Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition, as you mentioned, uh, from Beamdog coming out uh, hopefully next month. Um, and, uh, and then uh, we'll be moving on uh, comparatively after that just to see how successful those things are, right? So uh, I think that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Well, and let me just jump on a little bit more on that one. I mean, the, the thing that we recognize, I kind of talked to John a little bit earlier, is we understand that there's lots of different play methods. We understand there's lots of different experiences that people like to have. I mean, did anybody here play Tiny Adventurers when we had that on the Facebook way back when? Oh, a couple people, thank you. Uh, that was Yeah, it was a while back. That was an experiment we did. Uh, I was actually part of that team. And we were told, we came in, they told us we had two weeks to develop this game. <laughs> Literally, two weeks from, you know, hi, you've got two weeks to come up with a concept execute on it and have it go live. Uh, and so that's why it was quite simplistic, but it was a lot of fun. It was a great thing. Uh, we loved it while it was up until we took it down. Uh, and But it showed us that there's a different, whole different types of play experiences out there for different folks. And so one of the things that we have on our big list, once we get our rights back from Atari, we had a big list of things that we want to do in the future. And so a lot of that ties back to different types of play experiences on different mediums, everything from your mobile apps to your iOS to your this to that. You know, So there's a lot of things that we've got coming in the future, but like anything in technology, it takes more than two weeks <coughs> to actually create it and get it out there live. So there's a lot of, yeah, three weeks. There's a lot of cool stuff coming. Uh, you'll start seeing it in the next year to two years. And uh, you know what we really want to hear from you guys is if you've got brilliant ideas, let me know, you know, because uh, I'll put it onto the list. We'll we'll take looks at it. We'll see what we can do. But like, like John was saying, you know, a lot of our older games, we want to touch as much as we can do, because there's a lot of cool stuff out there. There's a lot of great games that were part of our history, as contracts allow, and as you know, finding you know, interested partners. We're going to do as much as we can because we love to bring a lot of that stuff back as much as too. But like you said, we have a lot of restraints around a lot of the older games. Okay, more questions? Oh, there we go. John's going to get his workout now. <laughs> so I guess the friends are you know, dragging me back to the Magic Gathering, and I'm trying to remember the rules and all this, and my friend said, hey, get this Jewel of Planewalkers thing, 10 bucks. So I get the game on play, and it's like, okay, great. So it reminds me, okay, we've got that turn system, and oh, you know, there's these new things that we, we called something else way back when I originally played it and all that. And it's a really great resource to basically take someone who's never played the game before and now, you know, I can I know all the rules, I can go to Friday Night Magic and not make a complete fool of myself. And is there are there any thoughts about doing something like that for, for the next version of community? There are thoughts about doing that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't tell you much more than that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, the magic guys are I'm not a magic guy, I'm a D and D guy. Um, uh, the magic guys uh, uh, they Really like Rules of Planeswalker for um, <coughs> Planeswalkers for the on-ramping experience, which you just uh, talked about, um, and that's what it's for. It's for people to get into Magic and, and then move on to Magic Gathering Online uh, or onto the paper game. 
Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that we get pressure from on that side is everybody wants to make Duel of the Planeswalker into a replica of the actual pen and paper game, which would have put you in the same spot that you were earlier, which is, oh my god, look how confusing this is, right? Um, I think there's 12,000 cards in Magic Mirror, right? Something like that? You don't, uh, you don't count them on a, like a weekly basis? No, because I'm, <clears throat> I'm not a Magic player. Okay. Um, uh, my kids are. Does that make me better? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, you're, you're right. And, and we do want to have uh, that, that kind of uh, on-ramping experience for, for not only the, the D&D game, but for the board games that we produce. Uh, we also um, uh, do Avalon Hill games as well. So all that stuff, uh, we have big, big plans for the future. Um, but I can't make any promises because every time we make a promise, we run into a wall. Right? So, yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the really important things to talk about, I mean, the Duels of Planeswalker is such a great on-ramping experience for it, for Magic because the, the play experience for Magic is pretty simple. It's me against you, and so it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, and it, uh, teaching the rules and stuff is pretty straightforward in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's a complex game, but it's still pretty straightforward. D&D, trying to equate the D&D to a startup experience is a little more difficult, you know. We've done some stuff in the past uh, through various different means and different mediums and stuff where it's been somewhat, somewhat successful but never really good. And so the one thing we want to make sure is that if we do it, we have a really strong, good experience because the last thing I want to do is come out there for an experience that turns people off rather than turns people on. And so that's the biggest conversations. Chris and I have had many conversations about this, and Dan, Dan's one of my art directors for on the digital side. Awesome guy. If you ever get a chance to meet him, I'm going to bring him to the con hopefully next year. Uh, because uh, the guy just lives and breathes D&D &D, just like the rest of the folks on my team. And uh, he just loves video games as well, too. But that's his big thing is, you know, how do we teach an experience that makes sense, that becomes a good on-ramping tool and makes a great, a great user experience, too, for the guy who, you know, there's a lot of folks, that's all they do is play the duels of the Planeswalker game. They never even go beyond that and, because it's such a great experience unto itself. And we need to have that same kind of on-ramping experience for D&D. So I'm not going to do it fast. I'm not going to do it cheap. I want to do it well. So we'll have one. I just don't know when. I always recommend to start out as melee. Just a little <laughs> easier onboarding. A little less to try to understand. Uh, I, I usually start One there. bar. And actually, I think you do too, John. I stay okay. there. And we both stay there. <laughs> I like to hit things. Yeah. It's a much more simple type of gameplay where you just have to rush up and hope that the healer keeps you alive. That's right. Um, all right. Dual wielding or... <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a power guy. The bigger the weapon, the better I am. Yeah, barbarians. I remember you uh, said that it's difficult to do design your own, um, but I think that that's one of the key differences between the digital format and the paper format. Yeah. And I think if you were to release a tool set, even if it was a very very complicated low level tool set. Mm -hmm. But I think you have enough people out there generating content that that would be interesting to people. I'm not saying that your average, your average user could go in and use these things, but if you think back to the days of Buzz, multi oh, yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, they had developers, they had people that were willing to learn the languages and pieces like that. And, they did. And I think that would be... Yeah, we saw that in Neverwinter, you know, in Neverwinter Nights, we saw that we had to use generate content there. It was just, 
and I love those guys. They were great guys. I love working with them too. Because I was there, that's how I got my break into the games, the video games industry. Is I was working with those guys from Baldur's Gate and then all the way through Neverwinter's Night. The 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 like you said, make, making the content is awesome. There's not a, there's a ton of DMs out there who just love making their own content, and they eat it up and they'll do it all day long. And they will sit here and work really hard to do it. The the second side besides the technical channels that you have, you have technical challenges of make people be able to make the content, upload the content, other people get in to play it. You also have to have a tool set that allows, uh, here's Jack. You also have to have a tool set that allows people to do it in a way that makes it not an unbearable experience. And that was one of the things Neverwinter suffered from was the fact that the tool set was kind of unbearable. And so, you, you, User-generated content is awesome, but you got to have the tools to support it and the community to support it so that it makes it fun, too. So it's got to it's work both ways. So yeah, I agree. Having it is awesome, and that's something that we always like to have whenever possible. It's just we have to make sure that it works right. Hi, Jack. Hi. Hi. Well, I was supposed to come at 11, right? Uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, we were starting at 10 with the panel, and then at 11, you get all to yourself. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I misread. No. Uh, but sorry, guys. You can just at the right time, because you can talk about uh, uh, how uh, Neverwinter is going to enable people to make their own dungeons. Yes. Uh, own dungeons, own campaign settings, own everything. Uh, we, we, actually, we actually planned that, just as you asked that question. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, uh, we've got, our first step was Star Trek Online, where we put user-generated content into it. And now we're kind of building and growing on it. And our goal is, is for people to be able to create their own campaigns and go ahead and run it. And you don't need to have the technical expertise of a rocket scientist like you did with the uh, previous iterations of Neverwinter UGC. And uh, we're trying to make it so it's pretty darn accessible. And that old gaming group, uh, when you know 20 years ago, they used to play with, you know, you can get together and play online. And in that campaign setting that you knew and love, you, you can set it up uh, right there on our servers. Or you can extend the Neverwinter content and, and link it in. Uh, it's it's our, our goal is really accessibility as much as humanly possible, but it's also the vision is is to allow people to recreate those memories of you know, being in a kitchen table or <clears throat> hanging out in somebody's bedroom rolling dice. Um, um, yeah, I, I played with the, the, the uh, founder a little bit. That's right. We just had that the closed beta test, didn't we, with that? Yes. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a lot better than using the, uh, the, the BioWare. Um, yeah, the Aurora uh, engine. The Aurora engine, yeah. Yeah. The Aurora engine um, was, was one of the better level design tools uh, that, that came out during that time. Oh, it, was, it was phenomenal. <laughs> and stuff, but it was still like four levels of technology uh, more difficult than, than your normal user could actually use. Right. So, so how do you, going back to that, how do you make it so that one user doesn't generate, here's my plus five Oracle Sword dungeon, I walk in uh, and I ruin It's actually, that's easy. Players don't generate uh, weapons. And if we do allow that, it doesn't exit that campaign or adventure. It stays internally consistent. Um, so you only ruin your own fun. Exactly. Who cares? If you want to run, run a Monty Hall campaign, how many of you know what that means anymore? Okay, good. Uh, if you want to run a Monty Hall campaign, uh, yeah, but some of the, you know some of the young guns—they have Monty Hall. Who the hell is that? Uh, that's fine by us. That's your fun. 
Heck, Wizards doesn't care. Nobody cares. As long as you're enjoying yourself, that's really the goal of any game. And uh, but as long as you know it doesn't contaminate others. But right now, I don't think players will be creating weapons, uh, at least at launch. That's something we might add later. Does it mean like treasures random at this point? Like you can set up a dungeon or whatever, you don't know what's on thing and what's popping in the chest. We might allow some levels of control, but essentially yes. So in other words, you want to make sure it's a sword. We'll we will divvy out automatically the the appropriate sword for what the players have just accomplished. Every MMO has a reward system working in the background that attach. We don't hand attach, or at least unless you're a madman, uh, we don't hand attach each individual potential reward to each critter. Right? They're tables, and you attach it. So all critters of this level of toughness go to this table. It's pretty. It's pretty easy to set up uh, in in the case of UGC. All right. So. Um, uh by the way, we did introduce Jack. This is Jack Hammer. Um, he's a you're the CEO of Cryptic. Right? Indeed, the CEO of Cryptic Studios. So and, we uh, they're making the Neverwinter MMO. Yep. Um, and that's what we're talking about right now. So, so uh, um, just in case anybody was. And you can play it. Uh, we're actually rebooting the servers. You can play DDO. And you, I said we have some turbine. Does everyone want it? Okay, Thanks. good. Um, uh, you can play DDO and Neverwinter. Uh, in the booth, kind of tucked to the side, right across from uh, Drizdit and Guinevere. Uh, All right, a question here. In your user-generated content, are you going to have uh, data points coming back to your online servers for that user content so it could be possibly discoverable by other people outside of your campaign? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And are you putting in a mechanic in there where maybe it could be... If it is, uh, say, used by somebody else, if there are remnants or artifacts of code because of that, there. That, that would show that somebody was actually in there, that somebody did use it, so that somebody that didn't create user content would know specifically that other people do like what they're designing, what they're developing. Oh, yeah, you should play Star Trek for that. There's a full content system, a rating system. We even have, uh, in. we're planning on some pretty bizarre stuff for Neverwinter. Um, and I have to... Uh, I, I was just talking with the person running the project on that, uh, and inevitably, I swear designers, <laughs> they come up with the most complicated stuff, but to, to rewind, we have, even have a tip jar so that you can tip people in-game currency if you really like what they did uh, to some limits. Um, we you know, might do something like that for Neverwinter. Um, there's a vastly more complicated system that somebody wants to do that I have to say no, but... Uh, yeah, I mean it's very important, right? You know, a lot of people create stuff just to create it, but it's pretty darn cool to create something and then become really well known for it. And in Star Trek, you know, there's about a dozen to two dozen really good creators. And in fact, I think coming up this month, we have spotlights on their content. And uh, who knows? We might absorb that content into the the mainstream game. Uh, uh, obviously, depending on what Wizard says, too. That's excellent, because that's a lot like Neverwinter Vault used to be for the original Neverwinter game, things of like that. Yeah. Because there was an online rating content. Yep. Some people kept persistent servers going, but there, it always did lack. Yeah. That corporate field would that there, persistent. Yeah, you are not uh, going to be running your own servers. It all runs on ours. Okay, so um, we're running out of time. Uh, what I would like to do uh, is ask Eric 
about update 15 and uh, the, the recent Minnesota the Underdark uh, update. Thanks. Just so that you get some time to to, uh, to talk about DDO. Sure. And, uh, so what? I just want to say first of all, what's cooler than Drown? I mean, who here? It's the best thing in D and D, right? Ever since it came out with Vault of the Drow, and this expansion is really badass. So it is almost like a relaunch of the game, and I I, I really really. Uh, encourage you guys check out DDO. It's free to play, and this expansion is a perfect time to jump in. So with that, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, we'll be in we'll be in the booth. Uh, we actually have a uh, a competition going in there today, but I'll be in there this weekend, and one of the uh, booths will be running the uh, new content. So um, one of the things that uh, I, I almost spoke of a little earlier, we're talking about you know going back and and. Uh, you know, reviving old uh, D&D experiences or campaigns. Um, one of the things that we were able to do that I wouldn't have guessed five years ago is go from Eberron and then level up and go to Forgotten Realms. So through some uh, back and forth over probably a year of how do we do this lore appropriately, uh, we managed to uh, open the gates, uh, as I would say, to uh, take uh, characters to epic levels in uh, the Forgotten Realms. So the new expansion is, is not just expanding the game and the levels, but actually taking it to a new campaign. Um, so after level 20, um, actually prior to that, in the heroic levels, you can get in and experience the, the Forgotten Realms, uh, Drow, Lolf experience, and uh, it's in line with the uh, uh, Rise of the Underdark campaign. It's Menace of the Underdark expansion. Um, so we, we launched that in, in June, uh, about 15 quests and some large open landscape areas, about three large, including the Underdark. Uh, one thing I'm really proud of is that we voiced Elminster, so you can hear what he sounds like after all these years. He's got a really high, squeaky voice. He's a little, yeah, he's a little, uh, yeah, uh, we, we had a lot of guidance, uh, but we found him. It's actually, so Warner Brothers always uses uh, contracted uh, union folk. Um, so uh, we got somebody who's a, um, a voice actor out of uh, uh, actually home bases in Dallas, Texas, um, uh, Brad Venerable. Um, I know Elminster does not have a Texas accent. And does not have, in fact, yeah. in fact oh, man, a little so too crazy. close, a little too, uh, almost too Sean Connery, if you will. Um, but uh, nonetheless, really cool. Um, so, so yeah, so you get to meet Elminster a little bit along the way. He convinces you that we share a common goal, and that's in uh, uh, fighting uh, Loth and her... Uh, Schindlerin, Drow, minions, and followers, uh, high priestesses, and so on. So we got to do lots of cool monsters we didn't do before. Um, we've got to introduce a lot of new um, uh, yeah, rigs. So one of the challenges, and we're talking about you know the art side of it, is, is, is uh, yeah, lots of spiders. Uh, when you create um, uh, new monsters. Um, what do they get rigged like, and like how many arms and limbs do they have? So we saw, saw some really cool things that are minions of Loth, but they had like 15 movable limbs on them. Um, so it's like, can we actually afford to do it? Because it's going to take the cost of three monsters to do this. So let's get more money and make these really cool. We got a couple, you know, forearm monsters in there instead uh, that are uh, equally awesome or menacing. So, um, so we shipped that in in June, and uh, keeping with the. Um, uh, I think it was G4's uh, MMO spot uh, tag uh, turbine. We worked too hard. Uh, we just turned out another um, uh, content update. Um, two months later, it launches this next week, and that continues the um, the Forgotten Realms campaign going uh, west of uh, the Cormier Kings Forest. 
Cool. So they gave me two hours of being able to talk to you guys today. Uh, so uh, Jack wanted to talk about uh, Neverwinter, so we're going to give him the next hour. <laughs> so um, uh, so what, uh, what we're going to do is let Jack set up his, uh, his stuff, and then we'll start probably in about 10 minutes. Gives you guys enough time to tweet all of your friends and, and uh, message them and get them all in here to see what, what uh, Neverwinter is all going to look like. So we'll start again in about 10 minutes, so 10 after the hour.